Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast. It is Thursday, February 23rd. Clemson's a basketball team. NCAA hopes not dead yet, we think. There was probably some panic on the outside after Saturday's loss at Louisville. But this team showed against Syracuse it still has it together and can still play some good basketball. I just submitted a column on that that's going to run later today at TigerIllustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864 4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Okay, every now and then on the podcast, we venture a bit away from the sporting realm. And today we visit with Nick Brown, who once upon a time was a rock star drummer and who once upon this time right now is a distinguished writer and a professor of creative writing at Clemson University. He has just put out a book, his memoir, called Bang Bang Crash, and I tore through it last weekend. Just a great read. I highly recommend for anybody, really. All right, to the conversation. Here we go. All right, joined by Nick Brown. But hey. who has the new book, Bang Bang Crash, that I just freaking just blazed through this weekend, and it is fantastic. I'm a little biased because I, I play a little bit of drums too, but you're a former celebrity music guy in our midst, current celebrity, creative writing professor. I know you're shaking your head because you're really bashful and humble, and you don't even like talking about this stuff, and yet you just wrote a book about it, so you have to talk about it, so I'm stoked. <laughs> well, I have many things already to say about what you've already said. <laughs> I'll start with, you said you play a little bit of drums. Larry, you're a great drummer. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I appreciate it. But, oh, man. Um, and uh, I take issue with celebrity, uh, especially with... I, that's why I always argue that drummers are, might be the sanest people in a band, because I feel like we're the ones most immune from celebrity, because we're hidden in the back. But to your last point about the topic making me uncomfortable, the topic of my drumming, you're right, and I think you probably know this, 
that I've learned over the years that if there's something that's weird and makes me feel or feels a little uncomfortable, it's usually also a good thing to write about. And so that's sort of, so yeah, I agree, but that's why I got into it. All right. Uh, I, there's so much to talk about, but <laughs> back in the, back in the nineties, you grew up in Greensboro, um, and started a band in the eighth grade. Yep. Um, started playing drums when you were eight, started taking lessons. Correct. Yep. Um, but y'all got big pretty quickly, and yep. by the end of high school, you had the opp- opportunities to go to two Ivy League schools, um, Princeton, and and Columbia, and Columbia, which you eventually went to. Mm-hmm. Eventually, but put it all on hold um, to go continue recording and touring with the band Athenaeum. 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 All right. Oh, I got it mostly it was, right. I mean, much closer than most people. It's crazy because I, the last time we saw each other, it was at a Halloween um, gathering at some mutual friends of ours' house, and I was introducing you to a friend of mine, who Zach, who plays in the Grateful Brothers band with me, and I had never heard of Athenaeum. And just the, the name by itself made me assume... That it was hardcore, like a punk band. And so I introduced, I said, hey, man, this is Nick, man. He used to play hardcore, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, I didn't. (laughs) The name, I hear you, man. That name, well, it was my mother recommended the name for the band. It was a, there was a club my dad had been in in high school called Athenaeum. This was in eighth grade when we formed the band. And there was a high school band in Greensboro called Dionysus. And I thought they were the coolest. And Athenaeum, my mom recommended, I thought, oh, that sort of sounds like Dionysus. Like, that'll be cool. Of course, you know, it was just a curse because nobody could say it or spell it. But um, it stuck with us. It lasted. The uh, record label, when our first, like, major label album came out, had to send out little, like, bumper CDs or tapes to the radio stations with a recording Mark, our singer, saying, this is Mark from Athenaeum. That's right. Athenaeum. It's pronounced Athenaeum. So, but then, at, at a, I don't, and I don't know the timeline, but at a certain point you realize, man, I don't even really like this. It's pop music. And I haven't listened to all of it, but I listened to some of it over the last few days, and I think it holds up. I, I, think it I agree. Really actually, good. Thanks, man. Um, and the drumming, of course, is is fantastic. Wow. But was it just that point of your life? You know, I mean, you're 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 just you're still becoming a man, basically, right. and and you're enduring that conflict between. Well, this is not even sort of the style that I'm into. And do you think had it come later that you would have been able to reconcile it and and been able to persist? Yeah, you know, I mean. Um, yeah, I'm still figuring all of it out, of course. I mean, we all have this That's story. why you wrote the book. Yeah, sure. But, you know, I mean, we, we did form this band to play in the eighth grade dance. The guys in the band are super cool and still are just, like, super nice guys. You know, Mark, the singer, Alex, the bass player, that, that was the core. And so there was never really a problem with, like, you know, there were never, like, band fights or anything. But it was just, you know, and I write in the book, too, there got to be a point where it felt like you're in this, like, 
relationship that you want you want it to keep going but you know you're sort of falling out of love with it and I do think that it you know I was the youngest guy in the band and my yeah my musical taste just started changing and then um it was a slow realization that I resisted for a long time because it was also an incredible job. You know, I was 19, 20, 21, the record deal with Atlantic Records and a hit song and like, sounds crazy to want to quit. And I had a great time with it. And then, you know, when I did leave, it it seemed like the right time and it was, you know, totally amicable. But it was just like a, really a... a you know, just my tastes had changed, and I was so excited to play with other musicians. And you were a jazz guy starting uh, in high school. Um, yeah, in middle school. Middle even. school. Yeah. Um, learning from a guy in Greensboro named Pete, who was a just your, I guess, classic bebop type stuff, and 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 which is much different from the straight ahead of of pop. And that's what is that what drew you sort of away from the from the pop. Well, I think that's what um, gave me a foundation of not looking at pop music as being like, whoa, this is super artistically like rewarding. You know, of course, it was artistically rewarding, especially at that age, just writing songs with my friends that were ours, and all of a sudden they sound good and people want to hear them is wildly rewarding. But it was like, I did have a very serious teacher when I was young who was very serious about jazz music, and I was too. And so it did always make me feel like, oh, well, this this stuff on, you know, that I'm doing, this rock and pop music is fun, but I'm not sure about the, the sort of, like, the depth there. I, it just, I, the foundation that I had had me pointed in a different direction to look for real musical depth. And so I think that, yeah, I do think that was a complication, you know? And that's just, like, my orientation It's how I'm, um, sort of imprinted on thinking about music, and I, I'm not saying that they're. In, I mean, I think you and I both know that there's you know all sorts of all different music has depth and worth and integrity, um, but that was uh, sort of how I was thinking of, of it then. And then I guess one thing I will say is like there's nothing better than being in a band that you feel is the coolest band. Yeah. And then the inverse of that, like when you're not into it, there's sort of nothing worse than being in the band that like you don't really want to be in and yet you're driving to a new town every day and just living sort of a crazy life for it. So it became that sort of inverse for me. What was the timeline like after like post high school graduation? How long did things go before you? Well, so (laughs) I graduated from high school. As you mentioned, I got into some good schools and said no to them. I took a two year deferral from Columbia after, you know, and it was eventually sort of five years after I'd been out of high school that I picked the phone back up and called Columbia to see if I could, you know, reapply and got the great news that they said I could come. But, um, you know, I mean, I was in the band all the way through high school and we had label attention even when I was in high school and we signed our, our first start, you know, publishing deal with EMI and then a record deal. And that was all within about a year of me graduating from high school. And so I would say there was about four years there where I was, you know, just working full time with that band. Um, you know, when I was out of high school, you know, um, but it's funny to think that, you know, when I quit the band, I was 22, 
Yeah. I'd been in that band for 11 years already. Yeah. It seems impossible. Wow, uh, that is amazing. Isn't it? Holy and I mean, smoke. of course, that's like the cool thing about it, too. Because like when I talked to those guys, we weren't just in a band together. You know, it was like sort of beyond magic just because of the age we were. Um, but yeah, so I was in that band for a long time and still managed to quit at the age of 22, 23, and then went on to play with a lot of other acts, too. And this isn't like behind the music type stuff you guys had mostly good clean fun and, 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 and no uh no, no sorted uh i guess led zeppelin uh hammer of the gods type stuff yes this memoir <laughs> is not hammer of the gods but it's funny because you know of course a lot of people expect to hear crazy rock and roll anecdotes but my experience from my band and those bands that we toured with and spent a lot of time with is that there was very little of that sort of, I mean, it is sort of surprising, but like just no drugs really. I mean, people would go out and drink, but it was essentially a bunch of like super motivated music nerds mm. who were very considerate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which in a way, if you think about it though, if you're a young man and you form a band with young, you know, people, you have to have your act together a little bit to be successful. You know I mean? It's sort of like running a small business. And so the bands that we knew and that had success and that we played with would be backstage with us talking about, you know, uh, <laughs> Faulkner, Hemingway, Fitzgerald. We would have straight up nerd conversations backstage. What bands? Oh, Foo, well, Foo I Fighters, mean, I know, right? Yeah. You, you well, should... the, I, the Faulkner, Hemingway, I'm thinking of a specific night on tour. There was a band called um, Harvey Danger, I think. They had okay. a hit song called Flagpole Sitter. And I remember I was backstage, I was reading some, you know, one of those classics and they, all those guys must've gone to college. I don't know. I don't, yeah. but I remember like this whole thing broke out backstage and I was like, I was loving it. And there were a couple of, you know, crew guys in the back were like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> but, um, you know, at, like with that band back in the day, we toured with, you know, we had a long tour with, um, it's really just a whole selection of bands that had big hits, you know, Goo Goo Dolls, Better Than Ezra. We did long tours with both those bands. Um, it's a bit of a blur. I'm trying to remember, you know. And, and I, I, there's an anecdote in the in the book where you you're trying to sort of find some inspiration, and you find it after in, in watching Taylor Hawkins sound checking. You're seeing how hard, mm. but I guess, and how also gracefully, right, and artfully, he's hitting his his uh, snare drum, and then you say, "Oh, I'm going to hit my." You, you become sort of obsessed with hitting your snare drum. Just as hard. When was this? Like, so you were you on a tour with them? So that was I remember that was April, nineteen ninety eight, and in the spring and summer of in the nineties when record, uh, sorry, when radio stations were important. Yeah, um, they would have, and I'm sure you and listeners probably remember who were around then would have just a series of like. Uh, radio festivals is what they would call it. So like, you know, I would like in Charlotte, like, you know, 105.1 The End would have like The End Fest, yeah. you know. And all of those festivals are essentially, whatever bands are in the top 20 right then, they're trying to get all, you know, seven of them to show up. And so what was happening with the Foo Fighters was we played a string of, um, you know, dozen dates or something where we were both on the bill but we were not it wasn't just Anthony I'm opening for the Foo Fighters you know some nights mm -hmm. it would be three or four bands some it would be like eight 
you know, at, at an amphitheater. But the show you're talking about was just, it was us and the Foo Fighters. Maybe it was just the two of us. Maybe there's another band. I think there was another one or two. But I just remember, yeah, at Soundcheck, standing beside Taylor Hawkins, and um, that was the drummer for the Foo Fighters, and he was an incredible drummer. Yeah. And I didn't know that at the time. You know, I mean, all the in- interest was just on Dave Grohl because he had been in Nirvana. Yep. This was still it was sort of a weird side a project. A couple years, four years later, I right. guess. And um, I was looking for a way to find technical and musical inspiration, and I hit the drums hard. But then when I saw Taylor, who was really, he was like an athlete, you know? Yeah. And it was just so exciting. And so I thought, oh, man, I can play the drums like that. And I did for a long time, which was exciting for a lot of people. But it also really screwed up my technique for mm. <laughs> playing the songs mm. I was playing. Because it, it, somebody in jazz, you're, you're used to bouncing, uh, not to get too technical here for the, sure. for the listeners, but it's more of a finesse thing. And so you, you lost your touch by just trying to... I lost my touch. And I, I stopped listening to the other players, really. And I write in the book about getting, uh, you know, we hear about athletes getting the yips. And uh, that's what happened to me then, I think, because I started overthinking how I was playing with the other musicians, and it just became a real mental tailspin in regard to my tempos, which just were not syncing up the right way with the other guys. And also, I don't think it was just me, but, you know, I think if I was listening like the musician that I had been, like you pointed out when I was, you know, playing jazz, that I would have been able to adjust more. Mm-hmm. But man, I was just, I was just killing the snare drum, all of the drums. When you're on a tour like that, mm-hmm. you know, and you're kind of fascinated by, oh, what's I want to see what this Dave Grohl band is doing. You know, he has a, he's not even playing drums. He's a yeah. front man. Do you? Is it kosher for you to approach? those dudes and hang out with them and, yeah. and, and, and chat with them back backstage. And especially if you're playing multiple shows together. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we formed a lot of good friendships with bands like that. I mean, um, with that band specifically, I was super nervous around Dave Grohl just cause you know, he's a huge celebrity. I think I said, I remember meeting him. I said, Hey man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan which really wasn't the case. I, I really wasn't a Nirvana <laughs> fan, but it was more just like my way of saying like, holy moly, like it's incredible to meet you. I said, I'm a big fan. He goes, oh man, I suck. <laughs> you know, it's just like super nice. I remember they were trying to, they came backstage to hang out one night and our t-shirt guy was at the door. He didn't know much of anything about rock and roll. He was just a friend of a friend who'd come out with us for a few weeks to sell T-shirts. And I remember he stuck his head back. He said, the food fighters are here. But I told him I had to ask you guys first. And we were like, oh, my God. (laughs) But uh, no, like we didn't know those guys at all. You know, really, we just played some shows. But a lot of those other bands, yeah, I mean, you know, I called it the summer camp syndrome. When Mm -hmm. you're on tour with the band, you're living in like, a tight-knit group that is an enclosed community is only going to last for so long. And the last day of tour, you tell everybody you love them and that you'll be in touch and you'll see them in a few weeks, and then you never see them again, you know? Uh, of course, some of those guys I've stayed in touch with, but a lot yeah. of it, you know, it's just super intense and then it's over. What about, so how many d- gigs a year do you think y'all were playing? So... At like just sort of a... Yeah, pick, well, pick, like... Pick a year. I guess uh, at the most... The 98 was the year when I was... I slept at home like I think 12 times that year. Wow. Yeah. And that was that was just, you know, that was the busiest of it all. But then there'd be times, you know, in between records where 
I would literally have nothing on my calendar for like a month and a half, you mm -hmm. know, getting paid to like basically wait around. And a lot of that time is when I got into writing, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, a lot of downtime touring too. But when I was, I was living in Chapel Hill at the time and just a lot of downtime and I just, I wrote a lot then, you know. And, and you're, so you're on salary at that point. Everybody, yeah. all, all the band members, all the crew, you're on a salary. It's not like you're, you're, you're getting uh, paid by the gig. No. What, what we did was take the advance from the record label and put it in the bank and dribble it out in the smallest amount possible. Mm -hmm. We paid ourselves $800 a month, which was more than enough. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, if you're, you know, like 21 and you're on the road most of the time and your rent's 250 bucks, I remember we had a like a real big um, business manager in New York, you know, Bert Goldstein, business manager to the stars. <laughs> and he was like, all right, boys. Yeah, I remember we were in a conference. Hey, how much are you paying yourselves a month? And he said, no, let me guess. You know, he had all of his assistants with him. He said, like, you know, 1500 And we all were like, no way. And we just kept going... Going lower and yeah. lower, and finally, like, oh, we, we're pulling 800 a month. And he goes, God bless you, boys. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I mean, we raised it a little after a while, but yeah, the, you know, we just had all this money from the label that we kept in the bank, and we paid ourselves the minimum we needed to just keep it going for a long time. Insurance? Benefits? So we got uh, insurance through the uh, Musicians Union, Um which I didn't understand. Like, I, I don't think I ever used it. I think somebody had mentioned it once. I remember somebody else used it, and I was like, so you tell me the insurance just paid for that? You know, <laughs> I mean, like, I didn't go to the doctor. I do remember when we joined the union, though, and uh, had the insurance. They mailed us our insurance or, you know, uh, union cards, whatever it was. You know, back then it was like you get an actual card. We were at the airport, you know, going somewhere and our business manager distributed them to us and I opened my envelope and I'd gotten the wrong card they'd sent me the card for um the singer he had a hit song called Barely Breathing Duncan Sheik okay. <laughs> I was like what I always think whenever I hear that song I'm like man I, I think I still have that dude's union card in my desk drawer somewhere wow but um you know yeah we were young we were invincible so you're in Clemson the last nine years. I hate to I hate to zigzag all over the place no. here. Um, and you were at Old Miss mm -hmm. previously in, in Oxford. Yep. Did you know your neighbors with with Otis Pickett, who was yeah. also in Oxford and who is now the new Jerry Reel, basically Clemson historian, fascinating dude. I'm Otis gonna, I'm to interview best. him at some point. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Um, did you know Wright Thompson? Of course. Oh, holy smokes! Yeah, Wright took me to my first football game at Old Miss. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, he, um, that was a great community down there. I did not know Otis when I was down there because we had a, I, I'm not sure if we overlapped exactly at the time or not. We know each other now through mutual friends. John T. Edge introduced us, okay. um, who has that TV show with Wright Thompson, um, True South. Okay. Um, but Oxford's an amazing place. You miss it? Yeah, that's the favorite, my favorite place I've ever lived. Yeah. So, there's, we're we're both writers, but we might as well be in different galaxies in uh, the nature of our writing. But like people like you and and Wright Thompson, like I don't know if you, he he just wrote a ridiculously good 
piece on Joe Montana. Oh, I haven't read it yet. Um, I know he wrote it. He's an incredible writer. Good grief. I mean, anything he writes about. Yeah. I mean, the definitive, the definitive pieces on Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods as well. And not to mention his last book that he wrote, Pappy, Pappy Land, Land. Yeah, which is Bourbon. About Bourbon and, and fathers and all sorts of important stuff. Great book. I was trying to explain to a friend that it's not just the writing when it comes to the piece on Montana. Jordan and Tiger Woods because it's not like you just call up a publicist and say, yeah, I'd like to spend a week <laughs> with with Michael Jordan. And they say, okay. He said, I, I, he, he, he did a podcast with somebody recently, I, I can't recall who, but he said he began laying the groundwork for the Jordan access like two years before he actually visited with him. Similar deal with Montana, who's sort of notoriously private, and so the reporting, to me, mm. is the... I mean, the writing is fantastic. Sure. You know, he's, what, I, I couldn't tr- dream of, of writing like he can, but, but just putting yourself in a position, like hanging out with Michael Jordan or Joe Montana, like if I were to be in a room with him, you know, within an hour, they'd probably get bored and say, all right, I'm ready to do something else, where he's got to carry a conversation and, and make himself interesting... Yeah, and and enough to that subject. It's a really good. God, I, I just can't really fathom how he how he does that. But. He's so comfortable with people. Mm-hmm. I spent a couple of days with him scouting for his TV show too, locations, and that was interesting to see him. You know, in a way, in a way, it was sort of a reporting trip, and he thinks about story real interesting. I mean, I you know, I, like a lot of people like that, they're not just gathering info. They're doing so many different things at the same time. That's not what I do. You know, I'm not a reporter like he is, uh, journalistically yeah. at least. Um, but it was interesting to see him thinking about one site and how it related to the other and how the crew might come in. And, you know, he's just yeah. thinking about He's a smart guy, good writer. It's super hard worker. What brought you to Clemson, if you can sort of just share? They I, they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been, uh, obviously I played drums for a long time, then went to school, went to grad school for writing, and uh, I love teaching, and I feel like if I hadn't had success as a writer, I would have found a way to be a teacher one way or the other. So luckily I started publishing, um, I published my first two novels, and then got hired as a professor out in Colorado, University of Northern Colorado, Mm -hmm. which was great. It just wasn't that good of a job, and... The job at Clemson came open, and I applied, and they offered me the job. I mean, that's the shortest mm-hmm. reason. But also, uh, my wife and I are from North Carolina. My grandparents lived in Clemson when I was growing up. My grandfather was a physicist up in Princeton and retired in Clemson, of all places. Wow. They lived in a condo up behind the Esso Club. And so I came here growing up all the time. And when you come to Clemson as a job candidate, they bring in people from all over the world. They don't. They can't believe it when you say, "I was here when I was, you know, six <laughs> I I remember those paw prints. So I think that was a big asset. And it also, like, maybe for other candidates, it can seem provincial or, um, you know, just like, what is, what am I doing? You know, moving here for us, it, it didn't. You know, it was a, we we got it. It was coming home in a way, and um, so. 
And I mean, really, on the most practical level, it's a great job. I teach creative writing mm-hmm. at a great university, and I get to walk to work, work. You know, it's amazing. What do your students aspire to do professionally after after school? I I don't know most of the time, and I don't think they do either. But I feel like part of my job is to tell them that there is a whole world out there where people make their living doing work creatively. And it's easy not to see that in Clemson, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think maybe students the same age in L.A. or New York or Chicago, like, they can see it. You know, there's the whole industry there. And it, it, that doesn't exist here. As I feel like I can be the guy who says, like, it's not crazy for you to think maybe I could be a writer, maybe I could go work in the film industry, maybe I could work in the entertainment industry, maybe I could, you know, work in the arts. Um, I'm there to say, like, you can do that if you want. And, you know, at the same time, I think most of them won't. But as you know, like, learning how to write well isn't just about being a writer. You know, it's about thinking about how story is constructed and how to read and just how to be in the world with other people. So... I think, you know, it's a it's full service slate in my classes. Yeah. But um I yeah, most of my students are still figuring it out, I think as most students are. I do have some who know specifically they want to pursue writing and a lot of them do. And I've had some who have had some pretty great success, you know. Um but for the most part, you know, writing success takes a long time to achieve and so most of them are still toiling at it. How often do you write something, whether it's an article? Obviously, you know, you, this is your fourth book. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in, through your more daily existence, apart from book writing, how often are you, are you sitting down to write something? You know, that, that answer changes. I tried to set up a schedule where I do some every day, which just erases the whole waiting for inspiration thing. Um, but right now, you know, with the book coming out, I've been busy with it and I've been letting myself not worry too much about the next project right now. Usually I try to have a full one underway. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say I, you know, I I still try to write a little bit every day, uh, whether it's on a typewriter or longhand, you know, just try to find some way to make it fun, you know? And uh, so I am doing that right now. I don't know what what exactly this is going to add up to, but I would say that answer changes. And I mean, more specifically, like when I'm really, and and I know you know what this is like, when I'm really in the book project or if there's a deadline, I just let it soak up tons of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, right now, yeah, I try to sit down a little bit every day. It's interesting, the, your practice of of writing something every day i try to tell people that um it's almost like being a runner like you know preparing for a a a marathon or even a 5k or whatever you don't just go out and do it you know you got to do it every day to sort of keep those muscles going and that's what fascinates me about somebody like wright thompson or more long form uh writing is gosh he must write maybe 
three pieces a year, a year. Yeah. So, and that's so intimidating, even when you've done some great reporting and, 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 and you've done all this legwork, but then you sit down and you, and you, right. and you have to write, which I, I don't know how I do that because I mean, I write something every day too, just for my sure. job, yeah, but I'm yeah. usually writing about, okay, here's what happened. Yeah. But I mean, that's <laughs> writing too. That. You know, I mean, you're telling a story. Yeah, it is. It is. But it's so different from the creative Yes, it is. But like, you know, I do write for magazines and stuff. And Mm -hmm. those pieces are great for me to have to come into and maybe have two weeks to do a little reporting and crank out a 2000 word article because it's like, you know, it's like a sprint or like it's like just cleansing the palate as opposed to like, here's the blank page. Like, think about this for a couple of years. So I enjoy the smaller projects as well. Um, But, you know, I'm, I'm spoiled by having the job at Clemson, too. But the fascinating part of this book is it's reporting. Yeah. Like you're having to <laughs> go back into scenes and, and, and describe things that happened decades ago. I remember talking to you at Halloween. Yeah. And you're like, man, it's just so hard because I'm having to talk to these people. I'm like, well, I'm trying to, it's, it's still, I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly what you're doing at that point. You yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't have it. You know, you hadn't read the book. Yeah, I hadn't seen the, the the totally the the idea crystallized. And so, are you having to call people and say, "Hey, is this how it really happened? <laughs> what do so, you remember?" Yeah, I mean, it, largely what I did was I wrote it the way I remembered it because, um, you know, I would write a lot about stuff that I thought was important, and you know, uh, then I would get down to the final draft of the chapter, and that stuff had been cut out. So I didn't waste a lot of time fact-checking stuff that, you know, didn't end up in the in the book. So I would write chapter by chapter, craft it down to the story that I wanted, and then with the reporting, the facts, that the scenes that were in there, then I would usually send the finished product to people who were in there and say, hey, man, can you take a look at this? Um, I want you to be comfortable with this and, like, let me know if there's anything you remember differently. And for the most part, you know, well, it's always interesting what you think you remember and what other people remember. For the most part, there was no, like, real giant sort of, like, shock in regard to, like, fact-checking stuff. But um, I guess, you know, I mean, the one thing that was surprising to me was Atlantic had always advertised Athenaeum as having a top ten hit. Never did. Well, I've learned never trust the marketing company. <laughs> part of a, it was 14, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, like they ran all these trade ads, you know, Athenaeum following up on their top 10 hit. And like what I've realized is there's so many charts and like, yeah, we were top 10 in a lot of markets. You know, we were number two or something in the Philippines. We were, You know, so like I can see somebody in there would say, well, they're top 10 on one of these lists. But yeah. like. If you're going to look at the national, you know, chart billboard or something, yeah, we we peaked at 14 on that. That was interesting. I didn't know that. Nobody in the band knew that. You know, it's sort of like, what, what, where did we land? Yeah. Um, but it was also, an, it, it was a nice way to connect with a lot of people from my past. So one piece of the, of the reporting, very vivid detail, um, you're writing about an unexpected night off. On, on tour and it's like you guys were like sweet this is the best day ever because we get to just sort of yeah. have this unplanned 
free time. <laughs> and you said you, you, you're in your hotel room. You watch Multiplicity starring Michael Keaton. The daylight <laughs> remains bright until late. A greenish yellow glow that seems to expand through the window. I leave the door open as if the light is fresh air that I'm letting in. We walk to a gas station near the exit later and buy a few beers. The parking lot has a couple of lights that rattle and buzz. And that that right there is like the intersection of the reporting part of it that's necessary. Like you're trying to recreate scenes that actually happen. And the creative part that is just your natural sort of domain. So did you just remember that stuff? Yeah. (laughs) Pretty vividly? Yes. I mean, what's interesting is like memory in a way did a lot of the editing for Mm -hmm. me. You know, I don't remember 98% of the shows we played. But that night in that hotel room, yeah, like, I remember the layout of the room. It was just like, oh, my God, we had a day off. We needed it so bad. We got our own room. And so the fact that I could remember it and remember those details sitting on the balcony with our legs hanging off, drinking, you know, cans of beer from the gas station with the lights buzzing. I mean, the lights buzzed in every parking lot, you know. (laughs) But um, the fact that I could remember that, I think, was also... Something telling me, like, what, what, why? You know, what was it about that night? You know what I mean? So some of that, the memories were very vivid. And then, um, of course, a lot is just, you know, you just, uh, I just don't remember a lot of it. I found um, a lot of what they call your tour diary, which is not a diary you keep about events. It's just what the road manager will give you every month or so. That's just, you know, back then... It was an actual binder. I can envision him going to Kinko's and having these printed up, you know, and it has the name of the town, the name of the club, the promoter, the hotel you're staying in, what time wake up is, what time loadout is. So you have the whole month. And I found a bunch of these. And, man, it's amazing how many shows you don't remember. It's like Kansas City with the Goo Goo Dolls. Okay. Like lost to time. And I love how one of your band members would would – uh, had a habit, uh, a, a humorous habit of, uh, you know, you, you're rolling into, into Chicago, and he's like, ah, oh, the city of brotherly love. Now, <laughs> he did that all the I really think I was the only one who had ever noticed. He did it on purpose, right. so just sort right. of riffing off right. this idea. Um, but, yeah, we would roll into Charlotte, and he would say, ah, the Twin Cities. <laughs> that was Alex, the bass player for Anthony, and he was a genius and hilarious. Was there any part of that life that you missed over uh, over the years? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a great question. The touring life, right. I guess. When I, when I first left that band, I was terrified. You know, I mean, I think any of us know ending, a, in a way, a long relationship or a job or a personal identity is really scary. And I was really worried that I would miss touring mm-hmm. and the thrill of being in a band that had attention and immediately I was playing with bands in New York and I so I didn't miss it at all and then I moved to Iowa to go to grad school and when I left New York I thought man I'm really gonna miss playing you know just the thrill of the downtown art scene and the real surprise was I didn't miss it at all mm-hmm. not for a second I kept waiting for it to come back and so at first when I left it, no, I didn't I didn't miss it. I think I just spent a lot of time staying up late and carrying drums for so long that I was, you know, mm-hmm. happy to leave that behind. Of course now it's different and I miss my friends, but um 
the thing that I've realized is writing is, you know, solitary and an alienating art practice because you're by yourself. And uh, that has benefits. You don't have to, you know, convince a bunch of other people to get on board with your art project. But when I do play music with friends, which I don't do that often, but a little bit more these days, I'm reminded of the sort of beauty of artistic collaboration with the right people. And that I miss because it's Mm -hmm. sort of explosive and thrilling in a way that writing isn't. And so, yeah, I miss that. And it's like a language. Yes. You're communicating without even really speaking sometimes when you're with the, the right musicians. Yeah, I mean, that sort of profound beauty and just like, yeah, communicating is not present in the way that I write. And so, yeah, that I miss. In a way, also sort of the physicality of it, like the explosive thrill of performance is, you know, it's sort of like being an, an elite athlete, you know, and just like I miss playing with, on the team, you know? Yeah. So there's that, but mostly no. I, I mean, I, I like to go to bed early. <laughs> 9.30, right? <laughs> oh, please, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that far uh, uh, later than, than, than you. Um, so you 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 said you, you you don't like you don't even like going to watch music. Well, I guess mm. mainly because a lot of it's a lot of it conflicts with your bedtime. But also, well. <laughs> you don't like you just you're 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 sitting there maybe just deconstructing yeah. every little piece of not just the music, but you're thinking about sound checks and things like just all that behind the scenes stuff. Is that, is that accurate? Is that, yeah, that is. And that's, you know, live music is amazing, but it's super complicated for me. Um, because yeah, I think about, I mean, it's all me, it's myself, you know, I'm just all wrapped up and thinking about, you know, sound check and gear and how, you know, where people are sitting and the, you know, where people are standing on stage, who I know, who knows who, does this remind me? And it just becomes, I just, I, it's still real complicated for me, but I listen to music yeah. with great joy, but yeah, seeing live music, I have yet to, I don't know. I have a friend, one of my close friends is a tennis player and um, his name's Trip Phillips, and is he still a professional? So he is the associate head coach at Chapel Hill right oh, now. Okay, wow. So he is still very much involved in tennis, but like, I do. I think about him a lot because he's a friend, but also like, I know he does not wake up and turn on the Australian Open first thing in the morning like I do to see some tennis because it's it's a different thing for him, you know. Uh, he's, and so like. I know I'm not the only one that has sort of a workplace, not PTSD, but complication hanging around experiencing live performance. But yeah, I don't, I don't. This is just wild. Like the, because <laughs> so much of, of us is flipped. Mm, like, so mm-hmm, like when mm-hmm. I go to a show to watch, I'm fascinated by all that stuff. Right. And particularly the bands that I really like. Yeah. And so, but with my job, Mm-hmm. Covering Clemson football, yeah, it's a job. I mean, I enjoy it. Right, right, right. But right. people come up to me and say, "Oh my God, you you talk to you know Dabo Sweeney? Yes, I talked to him. I've known him since you know since two thousand four when I first started doing this job. And yes, we yes we know each other. And so the magic is just." Yeah. Some of it's you know like during big moments. If they when they sure. win a national championship, it's like holy crap! I just got to 
right. have a window into that, you know. But my fanboy thing is with, is with music. And I'll yeah. share a story that applies to this. So the, uh, the Tedeschi Trucks band, uh, Derek Trucks, Susan Tedeschi, they have a two-drummer setup, which really resonates with me because I'm in a band with, yeah. with, with two drummers. And so one of their drummers, Tyler Greenwell, is just somebody. And we can talk about this, too, uh, how you grew up. And same as me, you just play the CDs over and over and over and over I'll and over. Stop. That's the best lessons Amen. you could probably ever get, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to, my wife and I went to see them uh, at the Fox Theater in Atlanta over the summer. And uh, we were with two other couples. And I was like, man, I'd really like to maybe hang out afterward and see if I can meet Tyler Greenwell, whose nickname is Falcon, by the way. That's the name, name of the band you were in in New York. But anyway, so... I, after the show, I tell the, the other two couples, I'm like, uh, we're going to go walk around a little bit. And I, I was too bashful. Like, I didn't God. even want to admit that I was about to be a fanboy. Yeah, but and so, yeah. And so Heidi and I are standing outside of their, uh, of their exit, like right by their buses, where you know they're going to eventually come out. And I'm telling her, I'm like, we're waiting for like, 30, 40 minutes. And I'm like, I'm sorry, honey. I'm so sorry. She's like, it's okay. It's okay. But I just had this revelation of now I know what it's like for Clemson football fans. Yeah. Who are like, oh my God, you get to be around this guy. And there's that sense of just wonder and magic. And that's how I am with some of the musicians that I, uh, that I, that I geek out to. And so it was just a weird, but just kind of, uh, I don't know. It's just the the revelation was it was strange, but also kind of cool. Like, hey, I'm I'm one of one of those people in some sense too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's beautiful. You know, I mean, like, I get what you're saying. Like, you don't want to say like, guys, I, I want to hang out and get an autograph. <laughs> but like, in a way, that's sort of the most beautiful part of the whole thing is that sort of magic thrill. So, yeah, you and I, you know, we've been lucky to work some yeah. of these jobs that people dream about having access to. Um, but it does change when you're, when you're part of it as work. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think if this were, if if you were in the, if you were a senior in high school right now in a successful up and coming band in 2023, Mm. how would things be different? Just mainly I'm getting at the record industry has been flipped totally upside down. And so they don't have the control anymore. It's not about you know, millions or thousands, tens of thousands of people buying a $15 CD. It's about downloads. And I guess touring is probably still, that's the more of a, more of a a moneymaker or I guess a form of, of, uh, sustenance, uh, now than it used to be. Have you thought about that? Like, what if this were, what if you guys were hitting big right now? Yeah. Well, that's the thing that, um, a discussion I've had with a lot of my friends who are musicians who had success, you know, at the same time that we did. I'm just so glad I had success then, yeah. you know, because it seems easier in a way. I think that it was harder to be one of the bands that had success. The major labels were the gatekeepers more. It's more democratic now, but we did not have to be our own publicists on social media. And, you know, you really didn't have to deal with anything other than knowing your parts and being professional, you know, and, mm-hmm. and being awake at the right time. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, speaking about sports, it was, you know, back then it was more like, um, I'm a 
big baseball fan, I do think about uh, the analogy there. It's like getting picked up by, you know, a major league team. And that's what happened back then. If you got signed to a major label, then you had your your chance. Yep. You know, you'd made it to the show. Now the line is real different, you know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can be a huge success and it can be sort of a niche thing. There's just, you know, the, the media landscape is wider and more open than it was back then. So I really don't know because I also I'm not... I'm not doing it now professionally in the same way, so I don't even understand the complications. But um, I do feel like I wonder if bands now have the same thrill that we had when we got signed mm-hmm. to Atlantic. You know, like it was a moment. Yeah. And now it seems more like what is the marker is of success? You know, I mean, even having a hit song now, like what does it mean? Radio's different. So the the sort of like the goalposts were fewer back then Mm -hmm. and maybe i don't know i'm sure that young musicians who are having success now it's also it's got to be thrilling but Mm -hmm. um back then we knew when we'd quote unquote made it you know and that was a special moment if you're in the eastern midlands and pd area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to Uptown Realty SC. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Another lawyer Loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-350. And you did in New York. I mean, you view that as your most successful, sort of your high point as a drummer. Yeah, I do. Um, playing in a, n- a number of bands, including Falcon, doing, I don't know if, if the doing commercials and things like that were part of that in sure. your mind, but what can you, Lens Crafters was it? Is one of, was oh, one of I them? I mean, that was, I remember going into a session once and playing. <laughs> But I mean, you know, it sounds weird maybe for somebody who doesn't know anything about me to hear like I'd quit some band and like now I'm saying playing on a Lens Crafters (laughs) jingle was the pinnacle of my success. But, you know, for me, leaving the sort of comfort and safety of the band that I was successful with in North Carolina and then moving to New York was a big artistic risk. And then to start finding a lot of work in New York with bands that, you know, I've really sort of looked up to and idolized 
was it's not like I was the marquee player. I was just a side man. But that's when I really felt like, oh, like I made it with like I'm in the mix mm-hmm. with these other musicians. This isn't just isolated to me and my buddy from middle school who made it happen. You know, sort of widened the artistic field for me. And so that's why I look at my time in New York as sort of the pinnacle artistically. And I played with great bands. You know, when I went there, there was a band called Skeleton Key, which is a super strange band. But, you know, they were on Capitol Records, been nominated for a Grammy for artwork. Mm-hmm. And then I played with a band called Long Wave, had a big record deal with RCA, and uh, just a bunch of cool acts, you know. It was very exciting. And I didn't have to tour that much. I could go yeah. to school and do most of my work in New York, and I would go and tour a little bit on spring break or the summer. But, you know, I didn't, I could just sort of like work in the city, which seemed decadently sort of domesticated and <laughs> nice. Can you just reconstruct what it's like to go do a job for one of these jingles? I mean, so, I mean, first of all, I didn't do a ton of jingle work. Um, I'm thinking of like, like that one. I want to say there was some replay in the studio of like a guy saying like, there's like a, a woman eye doctor, you know, she had like one set of eyeglasses on. She looked real nice. And then she put another one on, let her hair down. She looked real dangerous. She goes, okay, okay. I want you to play. She's an angel. She's an angel. Now she's the devil. Now she's the devil. Okay. Can you do that for me? And you're like, okay, you just do some stuff. <laughs> Wait, is it, and it's you and who, who are the other, is there, are there are other I think instruments? I was just putting down some tracks then that he was going to, you know, put something on top of. I mean, I can't believe I remember that specifically. That's why I had made it into the book. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I didn't, like I said, I didn't do a ton of jingles, Doritos. I did Doritos then. I don't know, man. You know, it's just sort of like, producers are amazing artists, too. And they, especially with that stuff, they know what's going on a lot more than you do. And they just, they're just getting people to put down some raw material and then they put it together, and, you know. Are you taking your drums in there or they already have... Um, both. both. Usually they already have something. Mm-hmm. I don't really care what the drums are if it's a jingle. Like, are there drums that sound like something like drums in the <laughs> studio? Okay. Are, is there written out music, sheet music? In, in no. Nope. Do you know how to read? Yeah. You do? Mm-hmm. That helped me as a session guy in New York because I would get jobs. Sometimes I would get jobs that day, you know. We need you to play a show tonight, you know, at the Mercury Line, sit in with this band, and that way I could hear a record and make charts for myself, having listened to it twice, you know, and just, and I, like, I'm not talking, like, notation. Not sight reading. N- no. I mean, yeah. I can't sight read, but you don't want me to. But, like, you know, listen to the song, write out the pattern, that's the chorus. You can quickly come up with your own. Yeah, I can write with the, you know, I mean, for drums, come yeah. on, you know, it's not rocket science for, for pop drums. You know, I write out the measure of what the verses, you know, 16 bars, chorus here, and I write out sort of the map of the song and then just have charts. But every now and then, you know, if somebody hires you to be their drummer, they don't want you back there with like, some people don't want you, (laughs) they don't want people to be able to see your charts. And Uh I remember playing this one show one night, (laughs) this woman, she said, I had like a little light clip on my music stand, you know, she goes, can you stop harshing my vibe? Can you turn that light off? <laughs> and I just thought, like, well, how am I going to? Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The people that really blow my mind are the ones who, like in Nashville, mm. the site, the session site readers who they show up mm. and time is money. 
Yeah, man. And so if you're not fast, then you're not getting a job, uh, another job. Uh, Chris Knight, who's a big Clemson fan, he lives in the area. He's played in a numerous – he played with Leanne Rimes. Uh, He's played with the country band Montgomery Gentry. Yeah. But he also does work as a session player and does sight reading in Nashville. And I'm just like, man, it's just a whole other That's a whole different thing. Those guys are such great players, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean – Surprisingly for me, there were like I'm sure there were literally thousands of drummers in New York City, mm-hmm. but for that world, the downtown rock scene, and this was when the Strokes were coming up. You know, they Longwave got signed to RCA at the same time, same person as the Strokes. You know, it was that scene. There weren't that many drummers. You know, it's like every audition, it was just me and this dude Colin. You know, it's like you if you can't get the you know, it's yeah. like like anywhere the world just sort of got small. And um, so it was more like, is he nice? Does he seem cool? Oh, he can, like, he writes out his own charts. He can play. Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it's funny. And you, you've recorded a record with Radiohead's producer? Well, yeah, John Leckie. He, he's like a legendary producer. You know, he like worked in Abbey Road and stuff and wow. worked with Pink Floyd. He wow. was, you know, an older British guy. And the last major label record I did was this crazy studio with John Leckie. It was so awesome. Mm. And then I left, I left that studio, went back to New York for, I think, one week and then moved to Iowa. And that's how mm. I closed it out in style. We have... We share a uh, uh, a deficiency of uh, <laughs> not being able to process lyrics to songs, which is very strange, or probably sounds strange because we're both writers. Um, but that's another exclamation point that I put in the book when I got to the passage. I'm like, "That's me!" Like I don't, I, I've, I could. You can give me a song I've heard a million times, and I can't tell you what it's about. Yeah, lyrically. This phenomenon is just fascinating on so many levels, and you even called, you tried to consult some, um, <laughs> what is it, lyric theory or something? Lyric uh, lyric scientists? There was a music psychologist, music psychologist that I tried to get in touch with, and lyric deafness is the, <laughs> is the phrase for this that I've found people that they call it. But I'm so glad you told me that you have the same thing. And before we started recording, I told you, too, that I have another friend who's a writer and drummer who told me he has the exact same problem. And um, I don't know. Well, Michael Azarad is the writer who, yeah, who told me that he's got the same issue. He's a great drummer, great writer. And his description I loved. He said, you know, I think, you know, I can, he, we can hear the words. Yeah. But it, when he described it, he said, when I try to focus on it, it's like the music scrambles my brain <laughs> and I can't focus on them. <laughs> and that's, it's like trying, you know, it's like looking at the night sky and trying to focus on the stars in your periphery, you know they're there, but then when you look at them, they go away. And that's the way it is with with lyrics. It's very strange. And Michael, you said, Azarad, told you that Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl had the same condition. So Dave Grohl has a big best-selling memoir out now, too, which I've not read. And he writes about this in that memoir, which I didn't know. Azarad is Nirvana's biographer, so he yeah. knows those guys well. So he sent me a video clip of of Dave Grohl doing his teeth thing um, on a radio show. It's exactly the way I do it. And then he sent me another clip of Kurt Cobain playing acoustic guitar at some point because Dave Grohl had told him that Kurt did it too. And you can see Kurt doing it. So I don't know. I'm in good company. I don't recommend anyone start this practice of tapping drums on their teeth. 
you have created holes in your molars from this. So, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these, that, yes, unfortunately, I had one filled up and this other one's opening up a little bit. And you have even different sections of your of your tooth line that one's bass drum, the other. This, this microphone's pretty sensitive, so if you get pretty close, we could probably hear what you're doing. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> but, oh yeah, gosh. I got different instruments. It's, the sound is so amazing inside of my head. Because, you know, (laughs) my skull is the resonator. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, I'm always, I always have a rhythm going through my head. Is your rhythm usually in four, or are you doing some complex, like, um, six, eight, nine, eleven? That's a good question. You you know, lots of times I don't, like, I'm not even aware of what it is, but I would say it is usually something in four, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And... Maybe it's something from, you know, it's like if I'm in the grocery store and I hear something in the background, I don't even know, it gets stuck in the back of my head. You know, I, Abby will ask me, like, what are you playing along to right now? And I have to stop and think, like, am <laughs> Like, uh, the, you know, O'Reilly Auto Parts jingle. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> the, this, I, this just popped in my head, but uh, during Christmas, uh, I, was, I think I was taking the girls to school and... And I was singing a Christmas. I was, I was, I'd say, it's a holly jolly Christmas. Da 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 da. <laughs> da. And they're exactly. like, you don't know the rest of the song? No, I swear I don't. Exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know the next. It's a holly Yeah. I think, and and until I read your book and came across your same affliction, yeah, my sort of explanation of it. Is, and it's the reason why I think arguing or debating musical taste is one of the stupider things that humans can do because people hear so many different right. things. It's like debating food, you sure. know, like, like you know, you talk about like what defines a great song, uh, the, a, a great, a, a really well written song. It's not. I mean, yeah. Writing lyrics is a part of writing, but there's also a song structure that you have to write. Sure, which that's what I listen to. Right, you know yeah. the 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 emotion of it and the direction of it, rather than the lyric content. Is that your your yeah. the same? And yes. it's the low end, obviously. Being so, I'm listening to the the bass and the and the drums and the structure. Uh, yeah, well, the, I mean, I I will listen to the whole sort of production slate, but. The weird thing, though, is that we're writers, and that's the exactly. thing people are like, they just, you know, you would think, yeah, we'd be interested in the lyrics. But I do say in the book that there is a difference for me between sort of like general music that I'm interested in, and then songwriters who are really like the greats. You know, there are some songs by uh, Bruce Springsteen or something that the lyrics have popped out to me, mm-hmm. and I've thought like, whoa, like this guy is a great yeah. writer. But that's a different artistic aesthetic intake for me than music you know but also i sing so poorly and i think of lyrics as the part of the musical delivery device of a vocalist and so for me it's almost like those are like that's not my instrument you know so i have a hard time envisioning those words in my mouth singing you know um but yes just as long as nobody has to listen to me sing, that's my gift to humanity. I think I told you that I can still recite every 
line from Paul Revere, the Beastie Boys, Slice <laughs> the Ill, from 1986. Part of that, I think, is that's before I started playing drums. Uh, but also another part is rap. Yeah. It's the 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 lyrics are percussive. It's like a saxophone. I'm not that's not an original thought. Some I forgot who shared that. Sure. But it's like a horn, yeah. you know. And how did they fit that into that space? And that pattern is amazing. It's a, the same yeah. sort of thing I would think of as I'm tapping a pattern on on the drums. You see this, and and actually, I think I think your daughter introduced the Beastie Boys well, she, as, I, as trying to help you start to appreciate. Well, lyrics. she told me when I decided that I I know I would do this experiment and see if I can actually learn some lyrics. She told me to. to Charlie Beastie Boys. That's not because she was introducing me to it. It's because she knows I listen to the Beastie Boys oh, all the okay. time. But okay. so, yeah, I still don't even know the Beastie Boy lyrics. You know, it's funny because I know exactly what you mean. But still with rap, I'm like, how can I love this rap song <laughs> and have no idea what they're talking <laughs> yeah, about? You yeah. know? Uh, but it is, it, you know, as a writer, I think it's a, um, a gift for me that I don't play another instrument and that I never longed to be a front person or a songwriter. You know, drumming for me was not a backup instrument. That was the musical adventure I wanted. And so I think it's an uncomplication for me musically that I'm not, you know, like interacting with lyrics that way. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it is just so weird for those of us who drum and write that that overlap doesn't happen. I do think that some of the... If there is an overlap, it comes in the rhythm of, mm -hmm. of writing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I see that in your writing for sure. And I, I feel like it comes out in my writing as well. And I think I try to tell people, you know, we have interns who come along who, who I work with. To, okay, here, you want to you learn how to write? Okay, here you go. And I'm just like, one of the things I say a lot is, write, try to write like you're having a conversation, yep. you know? Um, and that's hard to do when you're first starting out. Sure. Um, but I do feel like after you've done it over and over and over and over again, then you can start to develop um, your own voice, and hopefully that voice is conversational, you know, and instead of labored. But I do – You do you agree that if there is some overlap, it's in that word, oh, yeah. ryth the rhythmic part of, of writing? When I think of, like, my drumming style – I can see that exact stylistic imprint on my sentences, yeah. too. And I think, you know, I could maybe explain it to you if we looked yeah. at it, but, like, largely it's a, something that I feel like it's only something I see, really. Um, but, you know, like, as a drummer, I didn't play a lot of notes. I I didn't play a lot of fills, you know. Mm -hmm. It was like I sat behind, sort of sat within the song, and um, you know, I, feel, I do feel like, you know, my... My writing is so a little bit pared down, a little bit minimal. I like short declarative sentences, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of that is the same stylistic world in my mind. So, yeah, I hear you. You're talking about you slept a lot during one part of the book, and you're like, I slept, I slept, I slept. And it's like, da 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 da, -da. <laughs> yeah. It's like a rhythmic. Right, and I repeated a few times like, yeah, a, yeah. like a chorus. Same. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, with my, with my first book, which was uh, – the publisher calls it a novel. It's a strange book. It's basically a collection of short stories that are linked. But when I was first putting that together, I thought, like, how many stories do I need to make a book? And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't even know. How long is a book? Yeah. And then I thought, well, wait, a record is usually 12 songs. I'm going to do 
12 stories. And then it was like, what order will they be? And I was sequencing it like it was yeah. two sides to an actual record. And that really helped me then early on to think about a book as a record. So, When you're writing, can you listen to music while... No. Like, and it's because you're just... Yeah, I, I just get... I can't focus on the writing. Here. Yeah. I, I can't... You know, we know people who, are, you know, like have to have music on their headphones. And that would be like... Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's total mind eraser for me. I can do some jazz yeah, in the me background, too. like yeah, Ahmad Jamal trio is yeah. one I really enjoy listening to in the background. But other than that, it's like man, yeah, because you're I, just thinking about all the little granular parts. Of I'll it. leave NPR on sometimes. Yeah, I'll be writing and realize there's some weird opera going on <laughs> in the next room, but you know that's not drawing me in enough to distract me. All right, so if you were to this point, embarrassed that the topic even comes up at a dinner party. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, Nick! Nick used to play in a band, and they were they were really big. I mean, it used to make you physically ill almost. Oh my god! And I yeah. remember in your in my encounters with you, it's like I it's like oh god, he, <laughs> he's going to bring up the music thing, the drum thing. I mean, I'm like, wait a minute, you don't play drums at all? No, I don't play drums at all. Why not? You can tell you kind of you don't like talking about it, which yeah, is fine. Yeah, super weird about it. Well, what about now? Like moving? I mean, not just in the course of mm-hmm. doing interviews for the book, but long term. Are you going to be more like, oh yeah, I played in this pop band. I, I, more comfortable with talking about it, or do you even know? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know, but I mean that is a super interesting question that I'm wondering too, and uh, I do. I am already getting a lot more comfortable with it. You know, I mean. Part of that is time, too, mm-hmm. because uh, when I think about my musical identity as a young man, which, you know, Mark, the singer of my old band, Athenaeum, jokes that it's like me looking at photos of myself in middle school. And, like, people want to pr- trot it out and be like, here's the photo yeah. of Nick in eighth grade. And, you know, like, you get a little bashful. But, you know, there's enough time that's passed now that I feel like the artistic connections that I felt like might have been tied to that scene that I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to be lumped in with all that. Like, none of that matters anymore. And one of the first things you mentioned, which I agree with, and and I think in a pretty unbiased way, is that the music itself that I was playing, especially when I was young, really has integrity. And I mean, you know, it's of, of its time. But we weren't doing anything silly or embarrassing or stupid you know or it was you know well-written songs performed well and they were sincere you know and like that that's a nice combo to sort of like have hovering over your past but the i i don't i i don't know if i will ever be fully comfortable with the topic with i don't know what crowds i don't like you know sometimes you feel like you're bragging, you know, which isn't a good feeling. And then other times you feel like somebody has no idea that you were in, that you were a real musician. And then you feel like, oh, well, you need to explain like, oh, I was a, what yeah. are you going to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a big deal. You know, neither we of those, huge. neither of those feel good. Yeah. And then like, yeah, so it's just lots of times for me, eh, it's better if it's just, you know, sort of left out. I can identify with that. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm in a group of people I don't know and somebody says, oh yeah, Larry covers Clemson football. Not that I dread that. It's like it's you know, a then, whole thing. It's a whole thing. You it's know? a whole thing. Um, and people have big agendas they bring to that conversation. 
Oh, we could talk for another hour. <laughs> right. But I mean, I, I think you and I, yeah, like I think in both cases. Oh, yeah. Right. And it, so it's like, for me, I love the fact, even now as a, as a writer, that I can tell people I'm a professor. Mm-hmm. It's great cover. You know, people are like, okay, that's a job. I understand. <laughs> yeah. It's a thing. Cool. You know, if I'm on an airplane, yeah. say I'm a professor. So I got I got that to hide behind. So you had a reunion show, was this four, I'm trying to get the timeline right, four years ago in Greensboro? Yeah. And it was great. It was sold out, a thousand plus people, y'all had a great time. It was amazing, man. And then there, there's actually some YouTube video uh, mm. on it, it was great. Um, but sometime thereafter, uh, the Cat's Cradle in, Car- in Chapel Hill, <laughs> well, it's like, hey, yo, you guys want to play, was it with Dylan Fence? Yeah, one of my all-time favorite yeah. bands. I'm a, I'm a huge, like, I imprinted on them early. Mm. I'm a super fan. And so you got a call saying, hey, are you, you want to do this? And you said, I don't want to do it. Yeah. 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 That call was literally, I think, one or two days after the reunion. Okay. Yeah, I mean, immediately wow. we just started getting offers. And it was like, you know, I joked that saying that I didn't want to do more shows felt like I was quitting the band all over again. Yeah. But... You know, I did not want to go back and be in that band again, but I wanted to do that reunion show. And those are two very different things, you know. The reunion show is so magical and special and surprising in ways that I didn't expect. Um, and that's not what would happen if we started playing shows again. You know, it would just all of a sudden then just be opening for, you know, a band or playing, a, you know. Playing on a Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was protective of the magic that surprised me at the reunion show. And I didn't want it to be more complicated mm-hmm. than that. How often are you playing the drums right now? Well, that's a really interesting question. And there's, I mean, something interesting psychological going on with this book coming out with me. Because I'm playing the drums all the time. Nice. I've been playing a lot recently. Very cool. I mean, a whole lot. And, uh, you know, before we start recording, I just was telling you I'm, I'm redoing my drums right now, an old Gretsch kit. I've taken all the metal off and I'm polishing it. And it's funny because, um, you know, I started a few weeks ago. It's a long, satisfying project. And the drums are just coming together now. But I'm getting ready to do a bit of a book tour and I sort of want all the stuff to come in. I want to finish my project before I leave. But now, I was just thinking about it yesterday. Like my book comes out tomorrow as we record this. And it's like I'm rushing to get my drum set as clean as possible. Like, what's going on here? You know, you're right? It's like there's something slightly, you know, it's not like I'm taking the drums with me to perform. But uh, they do look and sound pretty good. So, yeah, I'm playing a lot. When you play, what do you play? Well, um, recently uh, I've re-taught myself how to play drums playing traditional grip because I never played traditional grip well mm-hmm. except for with brushes. Mm-hmm. For those listening, that's when you see drummers, you know, with their left hand is sort of flipped over. You think of like a, a marching drummer with a drum strapped around their shoulder. I always thought, you know, I was a jazz guy. I always thought those, those players yeah. from the 50s just look so graceful playing traditional. So I just started playing a bunch of rudiments, traditional grip, and it's real interesting. I don't know if you play traditional or not, oh. but... I mean, clearly, if you held the stick, that you'd still be able to play, but you also can't really play. Yeah. And so that was a cool thing. And then there's um, there's several shuffle-related sticking patterns that have always caught me up and tripped me up. And I just thought, 
some of them I, I've always thought, well, I'll never be able to play that. But just recently, I thought, oh, you know, all you got to do is go to the laundry room and practice for a few days. And so I've, it's been some technical stuff that I've been playing, and it's sort of satisfying. Very cool. Do your neighbors hear you? No. <laughs> but, I, because it's in the laundry room? Yeah. <laughs> and at first, I was really scared that they would. Not because I thought I'd be too loud, but because I just didn't want to have that conversation with them every day. Oh, hey, Nick, you practicing drums? How are the drums going? But I've realized now, because of the way my house is situated, you really can't hear them outside. And um, so I don't play that loud, but um, yeah, nobody but my family can really hear me, and I apologize to them. So jazz-type mm-hmm. stuff is where your interests still reside, or, or just rudimentary-type things? Um... Well, I mean, I, I am very interested in jazz, and when I when I practice, it's mostly jazz patterns or shuffle patterns, but also because that's still where the greatest sort of, like, mystery and, like, you know, I can get into the stuff where I'm like, well, I don't even understand how this works, yeah. and so that's always sort of interesting for me, but... Um, and I've started recording again with uh, the musicians, some musicians from New York that I played with. So there's this band that you mentioned earlier called Falcon, which is a side project from that band Longwave. And we have a new record coming out this year. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And so you, what did you record? Had an incredible studio in California, actually. Okay. I went out there over the summer. You wrote about this? Yeah, 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 and the the very end, the last you know few pages, I talk about trying to get out there. Yeah, and doing it, and so that project is going on. They're mixing that stuff, and so wow. I actually, and it was um, at first maybe just a reason to hang out with my old friends, and then I realized that artistically it was actually really good. So y'all are Athenia, Athenium, 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 Gosh, <laughs> I look, you you're not the only one, my friend. Big in the Philippines? Like, um, yeah, we had a huge hit in the Philippines, uh, which I still don't understand exactly. I do remember when it happened, Atlantic Records telling us that we were maybe number two in the Philippines. And we were like, well, are we going to go? And they basically said, like, no matter how much radio play you get in the Philippines, it's never going to make sense for us to send you there <laughs> to play, like, two shows. But, um, you know, if you search Athenaeum stuff online, you find a lot of weird videos of Filipino bands playing cover songs wow. of Athenaeum. And, <laughs> you know, when we do hear from fans, um, some of it from Filipino fans, and so something happened. There was one big radio station in the country. I can't remember the name of it. You know, I don't know much about it, but we were, it was a big deal. And it's just like, it's strange to think. <laughs> I think the one of the people here who years ago, I think after I had met you, but I was still trying to piece together, okay, what, where did he play? Yeah. Who did he play for? The assistant principal at Clemson Elementary, <laughs> Michael Turner, who's also a drummer. <laughs> Somehow he brought your name up and he goes, oh man, I was a huge fan. I Oh yeah, oh he's a great drummer. Da, 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 da. But in a recent podcast you had with the great Tommy Tomlinson, you said that your wife Abby was in the drop-off line. And I'll let you. Let, let, I'm going to let you tell it. You're the storyteller. Well, somehow he'd put together who I was, and he's the nicest yeah, guy. Super nice, right? Yes. And uh, just sort of a great person too to have at your child's school. Super cool, you know. Yeah. But somehow he'd figured out who I was, and Abby was dropping my daughter off at Clemson Elementary. 
here comes the, you know, the vice principal who sticks his head in the window, who, you know, we barely knew him and just sort of knew him as the vice principal. And he said something to Abby like, this is going to be a weird question, which is always <laughs> a terrible way to start any conversation. This is, but was your husband an Athenaeum? And uh, I think she said, like, yes. <laughs> of course, my daughter, you know, is probably in fourth grade, is dying of embarrassment in the back. And, uh, yeah, that was just a legendary moment in my musical identification. But, you know, yeah, he's a drummer. He he knows all the parts, and that was always sort of a funny uh, scene at Clemson Elementary when we talk about that. Francis would say, he always asks me if, if you've been playing music when, I, when he sees me in the hall, Dad. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Nick, is there anything we haven't covered that that uh that I've missed that you want to you haven't um urge to Well, uh, n- no. I mean, I'm so grateful that you had me over just to hang out and of and talk about this. I'm flattered you read the book and for me it's always exciting to talk to another writer who's also a drummer yeah. about some of this stuff. Um, you know, like the the lyric thing that you mentioned, I wouldn't know how to bring that up in a conversation with you in a in a maybe in a different way. And so this book is sort of like it's like I've prepared my conversational slate, yeah. <laughs> and now I can give it to people and know how to like you know sort of share my thoughts with them in a way that maybe I've struggled with in a while. But that's a it's just cool to connect with you about some of this. I know what one more I want to mm-hmm. ask: Was it the right decision to leave the band when you did? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it was so great when I was in it, and it was so great afterwards. Yeah. And I've said to people, that band, Athenaeum, I think we had the perfect level of success. You know, it was the real deal when we were doing it, but yet it wasn't so big that we couldn't go on and do something else. You know, it did not define me, um, at least in in like an absolute identity way. What was the tra- trajectory of the band after you left? How long? How much longer did they play? So we recorded a second record for Atlantic that I recorded with them, and then I left before that record came out. And my drum tech at the time, who's <laughs> you know an incredible drummer, uh, he played with Tonic too and Connells, if you know those bands. Oh yeah. And so then he filled in Jeremy, and they toured around, you know, for another year or so, and then I think that was about it. Didn't y'all sign like a six record deal initially? Uh-huh. Yeah, but it's like, um, you know, those those contracts are structured in different ways. So yeah, it was a six album deal, but it's what, what's called two firm, which means that no matter what, they're going to put out two records. They can't okay. drop you. But after the second one, they can drop you. But if they pick you up, then if they if you do a third record with Atlantic, you already have the terms set out and it goes on up to the sixth record so that they can't keep re-upping you for less money you know each record is a bigger budget a bigger advance yep. and so the as a young band what you wanted to do was get a record contract that was more than one firm record because usually you just be yeah you get one firm we'll sign you to a 15 album deal yeah, yeah. one firm yeah but yeah we had two firm and so that we did those two and anyway yeah it was the right decision Nick Brown, a, a an asset to this community in Clemson for sure, and and has has written a hell of a book. Um, really great stuff. Thank you for coming by. Thank you. All right, probably should have done this at the beginning, but just want to read a list of Nick's accomplishments. He's the author of the novels In Every Way, Doubles, and Flood Markers. Flood Markers was selected as an editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review. 
He's the fiction editor of the South Carolina Review. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Oxford American, and the Harvard Review, among many other publications. A graduate of Columbia University and the Iowa Writers' Workshop, he served as the Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi. Man, the Clemson community, whether you're into sports or not, uh, fortunate to have this guy around. Really appreciate him sharing his time with us. Also appreciate the support of all of our sponsors. And most of all, thanks to every one of you for hitting that play button. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you.